Hey everybody, it's Mike. Welcome or welcome back to the Revision Church Podcast. While you're here, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download the Revision app, which is actually the best way to get access to new content and share it with friends. You can get the app by texting Revision App to 77977. Thanks for listening today. My hope is that this message will be helpful for you and would inspire you to take the next step on your faith journey. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors at Revision. I'm excited to be here today as we finish up our Wisdom Smarter Decisions, Fewer Regrets series. We've been looking at the wisdom literature of the Old Testament to try to get a bigger, better vision of how to chase the lives God's called us to which I think in the modern world is a difficult thing to do because we got so many distractions and so much busyness and so much pain and so much difficulty that often we're just trying to survive it. But I think God has something more beautiful for us than just surviving this life. And so this morning I'm going to shift gears just a little bit and try and reawaken our sense of awe and wonder at the lives we get to live. Give us a little bit of purpose for the daily grind. Because I think if you're anything like me, sometimes you don't just feel caught up in the daily grind, you feel crushed by it a little. You got like work and bills and problems and kids and you're trying to stay alive and keep your head afloat and it's just difficult. It's difficult and frustrating sometimes, and you're not like popping out of bed with a pep in your step like, yes, I woke up again. Instead, you're hitting snooze three times and rolling out of bed like, okay, I can do it. I can do it again today. I'm going to get the tasks accomplished that are on the list, and then I'm going to rinse and repeat tomorrow. Like, that's, that's life, and it's not that it's bad. It's, it's not. It's good It's just not always particularly beautiful because it doesn't feel like everything we ever dreamed it would be. But I think God has something more for us than just settling for that and deciding that it can't be everything we dreamed it would be. And I recently had a moment that reminded me of that. It was kind of a wake-up call that it matters and makes a difference when I live with my eyes wide open. Our twins just turned nine, and they are super into the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles right now. I don't know why. I don't know if those are coming back. It's like a super flashback for a 90s kid, but they love it. And so my in-laws got them Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle costumes, complete with a shell and the masks and the weapons and everything. And they were incredibly excited and careless. They just were ninjing everything they could find. And at one point, I was standing, staring out my front window, lamenting the current status of my lawn And out of my peripheral vision, I caught something and turned just in time to see some nunchucks hit me in the middle. And (laughs) the worst part was I couldn't even collapse the way I wanted to because I just had surgery. I was in that stupid immobilization brace that I wore for six weeks. So I just had to slowly kind of like make my way down (laughs) and sit. And as I watched the ninjas run off to, you know, sword more people, I got real grumpy about my life, honestly. I was like, A, I just got nunchucked in the middle. B, my shoulder probably hurts worse than that. I haven't slept in months. I've never been this tired in my whole life. And C, in two hours, I'm going to have to fight with a couple nine-year-olds about why you can't bring weapons to bed. Like, why? Lord, why is this my life? Why me? And I'm guessing that some of you can relate to that question. But then I had a thought that stopped me in my tracks. I watched the ninjas run away and remembered that they're a gift. 
They're like a, a miraculous gift. Nine years ago, we almost lost Billy. Jenny delivered the twins in an operating room with like five doctors and nurses, and Tommy came out. It was fine, and then Billy got stuck. And they messed around for a little while, and finally the obstetrician said, Jenny, I think he's getting a little tired in there. And then four people who had been standing around smiling for an hour started putting on hats and masks and opening up drawers and pulling stuff out. And I thought, a little tired in there is not what a little tired in there means. That's not what you're saying at all. And then suddenly I got whisked away and thrown out of the room. And an hour later, they rolled in this beat-up-looking baby with wires everywhere. And the nurse said, it's kind of crazy. His initial APGAR score was a 2, which is bad, out of 10. It usually means something's gone wrong and there's going to be a long stay in the NICU, but he bounced back as fast as any kid I've ever seen. And at 15 minutes, he was a nine. He's going to be fine. And I was so relieved to hear that. I didn't think anything of it until a month later when we saw the OB who delivered him at a community fun run. She came over and picked up Billy and said, oh, the miracle baby. I've been doing this a long time. I'll never forget the night you came into the world. And I thought, the miracle, baby. I should have been a lot more panicked for that whole hour than I was. I didn't even know how panicked I should have been. But it was a really great moment lying on my floor remembering that a few weeks ago. Because it didn't make the nunchuck incident any better in and of itself. But it reminded me of the difference it makes in my life, in my attitude, in my soul, when my eyes are open to the miraculous stuff God has placed all around me. I think it's really easy to get caught up thinking that wonder lies out there. That, that the good stuff is somewhere far away from the mundane reality of our lives. And so we just live with our eyes closed. We're not really looking for it because it's, it's on the mountaintops or on the beaches. It's, it's somewhere else that we have to go if we're really going to see the beauty of God on this planet. It's up on the cliffs. It's certainly not in our kitchens or our cubicles where we actually live every day. I think so many of us miss the goodness of God because we're not looking for it in the grind. And we're not the first people in history to experience this. 1,500 years ago, Augustine wrote, men go abroad to wonder at the heights of the mountains, at the huge waves of the sea, at the long courses of the rivers, at the vast compass of the ocean, at the circular motion of the stars, and then they pass by themselves without wondering. I know some of us are sitting here today feeling completely ordinary. We pass by ourselves without wondering every single day because we look at who we are and what we do and we could not feel more useless and meaningless and common. And we look at our calendars for the week and there's so much on there that feels useless and meaningless and common. It kind of sucks the life out of us. And again, life isn't miserable. It isn't awful. It just feels like it's less than we dreamed it would be. And sometimes we're not quite sure how to face a world that doesn't seem to know how to face us back. And so it's easy to find ourselves buying into the idea that, that real life is measured by big moments and mountaintop experiences, the ones that we're looking back on or, or looking forward to. And we, we begin to believe then that meaning and purpose and beauty can only be encountered there because God isn't really like fully present 
in the routine spaces of our lives, which means awe and wonder aren't for the everyday, they're for the huge stuff, births and baptisms, promotions and proposals, those cataclysmic events that take up a disproportionate amount of the memory on our phones and the space on our social media feeds. That's the good stuff. That's where we experience God, right? But as great as the mountaintops are and as much as they shape us and they do, the truth of life is that most of the minutes we're breathing on this planet are spent in the unspecial reality of the valley. We live in the middle of the mundane. That's the bad news. But the good news is God has something for us there. And God is with us there. And when we remember that, when we remember that he fills every square inch of this universe and that he's moving all the time, it's a complete game changer. If you've got a Bible handy this morning, you can crack it open to Psalm 8. It's almost dead center. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along with the words on the screen. And if you need a Bible or your kids do, please grab one from the Next Steps table out in the lobby. We would love for you to take one. They're free. We love it when they disappear. But this is what David writes in Psalm 8. It's a song that he writes about the greatness and the glory of God and how that changes everything about the way we live every moment. He says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you've established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you've set in place. What is mankind that you're mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You've made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under your feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild and the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, How majestic is your name in all the earth. We have an amazing, creative creator who's present in every space and every second, and that changes everything. There are a couple of things I think David's doing in this psalm that I want to draw out this morning. And the first one is this. Like he's reminding us when we open our eyes to wonder. We find majesty in the mundane. And the truth is, all of us have stuff coming up this week that we wouldn't even think to look for God in. It's just normal, and it's common, and we don't always experience his presence and his love and his greatness and his glory in that stuff. And so we walk into it and walk around with our eyes shut, but David reminds us God is everywhere. He's in every square inch of the universe, which means in the spaces of our lives where we aren't seeing and feeling the presence of God, it's not because he's absent, it's because we aren't looking. We're not aware. We're not seeking him. You know, this psalm begins with the phrase, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And David's doing something really cool with this phrase, name, that would be difficult to understand unless you paid really, really close attention to what's going on in your English Bible. Because the words Lord and Lord in that verse are two totally different words. 
There are actually two words in the Old Testament that we translate Lord. One of them is Adonai. And Adonai is a generic term. It means Lord, ruler, king, guy who's in charge. It shows up all throughout the Old Testament, and we translate it Lord. And then there's another word that we translate Lord, Yahweh. And Yahweh is not generic at all. And the only way we can tell the difference is if you look closely, one of those is in all caps and one isn't. Anytime it's Adonai in your English version of the Bible... It's not all caps, just Lord. Anytime it's all caps, Lord, it's Yahweh. And Yahweh is a specific name. When God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, like Moses saw this bush that was on fire, but it wasn't burning. And he went over and he, he talked to God and he said, who are you? And God said, I am. I am that I am, Yahweh. That's the name that represents everything God is. And the ancient Hebrews were so concerned with with God's glory and with his holiness that they refused to say the name Yahweh out loud. And so when they read the Bible and they came to the name Yahweh, what they would say out loud is Hashem. Hashem means the name. That, That name that represents I am and all that he is. And so what David's doing at the beginning of this psalm is saying, oh, the name our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And he's pointing us to what that name means, to all that God is, to the I am being present in every space and every second and every square inch of our universe and every moment in the beautiful places and the good times and the common places and frustrating times. He's beckoning us to open up our eyes and be filled with wonder. And the $64,000 theological term for living with this sense of God's power and presence and majesty and movement is the numinous. Can everybody say numinous with me? Numinous. I just made you say it because it's, it's fun to say. <laughs> but it comes from this Latin word numen, which the Romans used to refer to local deities. They thought like every city had its own little like God or spirit who ruled over that city. And that, that was called the, the numen. And then Christians took that phrase, Newman, and applied it to the God who rules over every city and every locality, who's present in all the earth, and started using this phrase, numinous, to refer to life, to, to like taking every breath and feeling every heartbeat in our chests with the knowledge that God is there and God is working to set all things right and make all things new, and He's present and He loves us, and it's incredible. I wonder what it would be like if we started to live like that, if every moment we were filled with that sense of the numinous. There's a Bible scholar from Yale named Walter Brueggemann who argues that the gospel for most American Christians is a truth we believe, but it is, as he terms it, a truth greatly reduced. He says, we believe like, that, that Jesus came and died and rose again. We, we got the whole gospel thing, and we believe it in a salvific sense, like one day we get to go to heaven when we die, but we don't believe it in a way that awakens our souls and absolutely changes every second we're alive on this planet. And Brueggemann argues that if we could start to see the presence and the movement of God everywhere around us in every minute, we would live like poetry in a prose-flattened world. That's what Paul's talking about in Acts 16 when he says God is not far from any one of us. And then he quotes the Greek philosopher Epimenides, says in him we live and move and have our being. 
Like if we'll just open our eyes in the middle of the mundane, I'm convinced, you guys, what we will find is that God is just as real and just as present in the valley and the plains and the foothills of our lives as he is on those mountaintops. That's a countercultural idea, though. It is. There's a sense in our world today that you have to travel to the mountaintop places, which may or may not be actual mountaintops, in order to really live, in order to understand the world and, and be cultured and be courageous and gain life experience. And I think even the church gets caught up in this sometimes. We start to believe that you have to go on, on a mission trip to some faraway land to really see how God's moving in the world today. And don't get me wrong, I have nothing against travel and absolutely nothing against missions. I love missions, but it's interesting to me that this sort of travel cult has developed in our society. And I think the patron saint in the modern world is J.R.R. Tolkien. Like the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings are these sacred texts of adventure, of like finding who we really are on some epic quest to some faraway land. The mantra of our moment is Tolkien's, not all those who wander are lost. But it's funny that that's the line we've chosen and, and that's the hero we've chosen, in part because that's part of a poem Tolkien wrote. And the stanza right before, not all who wander are lost, is all that is gold does not glitter. It's Tolkien's way of saying, we don't have to go find shiny people and shiny places. There's beauty right in front of our faces if we just look a little harder. And two stanzas later, he says, deep roots are not touched by the frost. That when difficulty comes, it matters that we have deep roots in places with people. So it's amusing that that line got yanked out of context and misunderstood. And it's also funny that Tolkien's the godfather of this travel movement because the only time in his whole life when he traveled is when they sent him to France to fight World War I. He spent almost his entire life in London. He ate at the same pub every Tuesday with C.S. Lewis and some of their other writer friends who called themselves the Inklings. When he went on vacation, he made his way all the way to the English coast. And for fun, Tolkien graded other professors' papers. Like, this guy was a real hoot, all right? And it's not just that he didn't travel, it's that he didn't think anybody needed to. When he got asked about the Lord of the Rings and the meaning behind it, he said that the Englishmen are the hobbits, or the hobbits were, were Englishmen. He believed that his people, his countrymen, had great courage living within them because he'd seen them fight alongside him for what was right and unflinchingly charge out of the trenches in the Great War. But he thought that they lacked imagination. He said, too many people all around me every day bake at their bakeries and farm at their farms and sell at their shops without any sense of the beauty of all of it. They're not really alive in the way God wants them to be alive. And so Tolkien wrote and Lewis wrote what they termed fairy stories. Not to help the people around them like decide they needed to go seek adventure somewhere else, but to help the people around them begin to dream. Like for them, these fantasy worlds were not an alternate reality or an escape from reality. They were a reacquaintance with a greater reality that God placed in all of our souls, but the tragic brokenness of our world has blinded us to. They were Tolkien's way and Lewis's way and Paul's way when he says God's not far in and we live and move and have our being. They wrote that stuff to awaken us to the numinous, to remind us that there's a reality more real and more meaningful than all that stuff we call the real world. You guys, 
Even the most ordinary human life on this planet is filled with epic quests and wrenching conflicts and the heroic choice between courage and compassion or greed and selfishness every day. We're alive. It's a trip. It is. And so my prayer is just today that we'd be awakened to the numinous, that we'd remember that in him we live and move and have our being that we can experience the power and the greatness and the glory of the God of this universe in every space, in every second. And as we do that, we can be a part of what he's doing in our world to create a better future for everyone we crash into. That's the second thing I, I think Psalm 8 teaches us, is that when we open our eyes to wonder, we find a fight for the future. I'm convinced one of the greatest tools the enemy uses to get us to settle for less than the lives God says we were created for is not tempting us to do too much evil. It's distracting us to do too little dreaming. Wander is a portal to progress. It pulls us forward and it causes us to pull reality forward with us. Einstein once said, he who can no longer stand in wonder and be wrapped with awe is as good as dead. His eyes are closed. See, the thing about noticing the movement of God all around us is that it reminds us that all we see is not all there is. And that all there is is not all there can be. That God is doing something and we don't have to settle for the shattered nature of our universe because he's promised us he is setting all things right and making all things new. And as we open our eyes to wonder and awe, to seeing and acknowledging his presence, we get to be a part of that. I love that in the middle of Psalm 8, David asks the most rhetorical question in the history of rhetorical questions. He says, what is mankind that you're mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them? And the simple answer is nothing. We're nothing that God should be mindful of us. We're small and frail, temporary and failed, nothing. And yet, the one who dreamed up the universe and holds it together cares about us. David says, you made humanity a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds, all the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim in the paths of the seas. Because we have work to do every day. Not just adventure to find, but stuff to do Monday through Friday that matters. Because God handed it to us and invited us to be a part of the great work he's doing in our world. And if we open up our eyes and begin to live in the numinous, the sense of awe-filled wonder at the miracles all around us, we cannot help but find a fight for the future because the world is messed up and there are hurting people all around us yearning to breathe the oxygen of God's love. Make no, make no mistake though, like seeing the world through that lens is vulnerable and it's costly because opening up our eyes to see beauty means we're inevitably going to see tragedy too. I think sometimes we fill up our calendars with stuff that makes us busy but doesn't really make us alive. 
And I think we do it on purpose. To numb ourselves to the pain that surrounds us. We know it's there. In the lives of our neighbors and our coworkers and our friends and in our own lives too. And so we try really hard not to see it because it hurts when we see it. It makes us feel like life's overwhelming and unlivable. Like it's a condition that requires a little anesthesia from time to time. Here's the truth. Seeing God, living in the wonder of his presence, realizing the meaning he's placed into each moment and every breath that our souls get to breathe and every heartbeat that happens in our chest, that means that our souls get to soar, but it also means our hearts have to break. It means this gospel truth can't be greatly reduced. It can't just be a ticket to heaven when we die. It's got to move from our heads into our hearts and our hands as we walk out into a shattered world and allow God to use us to help heal up some of what's broken. And we do that by sharing the gospel, by telling people the good news of Jesus and inviting them in, but we also do that by doing excellent work with whatever work God has placed in front of us. The great tasks and the small tasks, when we do them well, we add value to people and bring flourishing to the world in a way that changes the game and writes a better story for this universe than the broken story it's headed toward right now. I promise you what you are doing matters. What you leave here today and do with your family as you parent and kid and school and live matters. What you walk into work on Monday morning and do 45, 50 hours a week matters. It makes a difference. It adds value to people and brings flourishing to the universe. Don't believe for one second that you're common and that you're ordinary and that you have no role to play. My prayer this morning is that we'd be awakened to the numinous, to the awe and the wonder and the miracle that we're actually here and that the creator of the universe wants to work in and through our lives to touch the people around us and make the world a better place. That's why you're here. You're not here by accident. It's not a mistake that you're right here, right now. God has a thing for you to do. My favorite poem in the world is by Elizabeth Barrett Browning. And most of you have heard it because I put it on the screen every four months. And I'm going to keep doing that even if you're sick of it. Because for me, this is a daily reminder. I read it every single day. Earth's crammed with heaven. And every common bush afire with God. And only, see, or only he who sees takes off his shoes, the rest sit round it and pluck blackberries. Earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush of fire with God. And only he who sees takes off his shoes, the rest sit round it and pluck blackberries. Like, I don't want to waste my life sitting around. I want to see the fire of God and the heaven crammed into every square inch of my universe. And I know that's easier said than done. Like I know all of us are going to walk out into a world full of broken people, broken situations, and broken tasks that we don't really want to do. And there are going to be times when we miss it because we're not used to having our eyes open for God in all of the mundane, boring stuff of life. There'll be times when we sit around and pluck blackberries even though heaven is right in front of our faces, and that's okay. But I want to invite us this morning to something more because I think all of our souls, whether we know it or not, long to live in the numinous. And something changes for us when we begin to notice God moving in the everyday, not just the Instagrammable. And if we do it, as we do it, as we begin to seek God's face and to see 
God's glory. I think what we find on the other side is the lives we were created for, the lives our souls are longing to live. Will you guys pray with me? God, thank you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for the way that you love us. Thank you for showing up and caring enough to to give everything so that we could be connected to you. Would you open our eyes to that connection? Would you help us see it? Lord, we live in a world that's all sorts of messed up, that's shattered in more ways than we can count. And as we, like just this, this group of people, this community, this family, this church, as we walk back out into the darkness, would you give us the courage we need to fight for the future and the souls we need to find majesty in the mundane. May we be a people who live in a way that not only awakens our souls to the lives we were created for, but points everybody around us to those lives as well because we know, Lord, the world is desperate for you and we know that we have a chance to see the miraculous all around us and to live in a way that opens everyone else's eyes and allows them to see it too. We pray that you'd help us do that and help us be those people. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.